The phone rang. And mother answered, Hello? Hello, ma'am, I'm a reporter, and we're choosing a woman at random to give a brief account of their job descriptions to run in next week's issue of our career paper. Do you have a minute? Sorry, but I'm really busy right now. Okay, ma'am, I won't take any more of your time. Oh, I'm sorry, I was just talking to my two-year-old. She's trying to get me to pour her some milk. Oh, well, I'll be brief. First of all, do you work? Of course I do. Great. What's your occupation? I'm a mother. Oh, I see. You're a mother. Well, let's hear the job description. Are you sure? Do you have time? Okay, here goes. I have the world's most important job. I train people for life. I teach them morals and right from wrong. I make sure they get the proper education that will help them to one day have the ability to rule the world if necessary. I also teach them the smaller things that go along with good civilization, such as good hygiene and good manners. The training process takes a lot of patience and requires me to hold a number of different job titles. I'll share just a few of them with you for the sake of time. For one thing, I'm a nurse. There are times when my little trainees will get scraped knees and Little tears will stream down their faces. It's my place to put a colorful bandage on it and kiss it. This has an amazing healing effect. Usually the child will then wipe their eyes, smile, and run back and do the same thing that made them get their scrape in the first place. However, there are more difficult times like when my kids have the flu. It is then my place to be on call at any given moment to come and check temperatures administrate medicine, or even hold a barf bag. If I don't get there quickly enough, it may require cleaning messes out of the carpet. I often give up my own sleep to make sure that my child is comfortable. I'm also a referee. Fights break out between siblings, and it's my place to break them up, administer discipline when necessary, and restore the peace. In addition, I'm also a teacher, a judge, an attorney, a chauffeur, a maid, a cook, and, sir? Sir, are you still there? Uh, he must have got tired of listening to all I have to do. Oh, well. Sweetie, he hears your milk. The job description of a mother is so extensive and the demands are so consuming that it could be very easy for a woman with children to see her primary identity as a mom. And I think we can somewhat understand the, conclusions, the conclusion that women who go from working a full-time job to being a stay-at-home mom often go through some sort of an identity crisis. Well, every single one of us, whether we're a mom or not, all of us live out of some sense of identity. And if who we are in Christ doesn't shape the way we think about ourselves and the things that we face, then we have what Paul Tripp calls identity amnesia. And we'll live out of some other type of identity, like a difficult life circumstance, which 
consumes us and becomes who we are. Or perhaps an achievement. I accomplish something and that's my identity. Acceptance, performance, perhaps even physical things. I have this and it's really nice and we wrap up in that who we are. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, the Apostle Paul describes his identity. He gives us a picture of who he sees himself to be. And he, he, he sees his identity as a conquered rebel and as a living sacrifice. And, and I think that through understanding and applying these two metaphors, we find in them a strong antidote to the identity amnesia that all of us, at some point in time, in one way or another, experience. So I invite you there. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And follow along as I read verses 12 through 17. Paul tells the Corinthians that when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity and commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Before we get to the core of this section and the metaphors Paul describes that start in verse 14, let's consider verses 12 and 13. They function as a sort of transition into what he says in verse 14. Paul had written a really hard letter, a severe letter. It's sometimes called the tearful letter. To the Corinthians, addressing the issues and problems that they had, particularly their issues and problems towards him as an apostle. And he was really anxious to hear their response. He wanted to know, how did this hard letter hit them? Well, they couldn't call him or email him or text him what they thought. And so Paul arranged for Titus to go to them and see them and to hear what they thought. And then he was going to meet Titus in Troas, and Titus could fill him in. Titus would give him there the debrief. But Titus didn't show up. Paul's waiting. He doesn't show up. In Paul's anxiety over Titus and the Corinthians, the text says, force him to move on from Troas, even though there was an open door there for the gospel. As one commentator put it, the conflict in Corinth agitated Paul so much that it sabotaged a mission opportunity. This anxiety was another example of the suffering God, Paul, God called Paul to bear. There's a list in, in chapter 11, verses, verse 28, and Paul shares all these incredible sufferings he endured. The crown of that list is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. 
this unrest of his spirit inhibited his work in Troas, and it forced him to reluctantly say goodbye. But, but we do see later, so in chapter 7, verses 5 through 16, we do see that later his anxiety was put to rest. As in Macedonia, he connected with Titus, and Titus gave him a good report that the letter had been received well. Now, one man I read concluded that Paul was wrong to leave Troas. Because God had opened a door for the gospel there, by all means, of course, he should have stayed. And his concern for the Corinthians was a weakness that hindered the spread of the gospel. I think it's really interesting to think about that, whether or not Paul should have stayed. But the bottom line is that none of us are Paul. And there's no indication at all in the text that he was wrong to leave. For better or worse, his grief undermined the effectiveness and led him to exit doors that God had opened for him to enter. It's really sad. Think about what happened, what happened here. It's really sad to consider, and, and I think it reveals the interconnectedness of Christians. It's sobering to consider that we cannot hurt one another without also hurting the work of God in the world. We also see here really clearly Paul's care for the Corinthians. His concern for the Corinthians led him to Troas in the first place, and now his concern for them led him to Macedonia. And not even an opportunity to expand his own ministry was more important to Paul than their well-being. For those of us who are elders, I think this is a great example of the loving anxiety for your spiritual good that we must have for you as members of this church. Sometimes it can be really hard to know how to best express that care. There's times when it's not understood. There's times when it's not appreciated. So please pray for us. Pray for us in our efforts to care for you like this. Paul proceeds now in verse 14 to share the first metaphor which describes how he sees himself. His identity is a conquered rebel. Notice there at the beginning of verse 14, he thanks God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Uh, this triumphal procession here that Paul's referring to was the lavish victory parade celebrated in Rome after great battles. Oh, they were extravagant and flashy celebrations filled with valiant soldiers, the spoils of war. It was the most extravagant and theatrical pomp and circumstance Rome could possibly muster. Hey, imagine, imagine if the wild happened to win the Stanley Cup Imagine what the parade in St. Paul will be like. It, it, it's, it would be amazing, right? But this Roman parade would make that look even smaller than Burnsville's fire muster parade. This was a major cultural and civic event. Everyone in the Roman Empire knew about these parades as they were represented on Roman arches, coins, statues, paintings. There's about 350 triumphs that are recorded 
in ancient literature. Well, the highest honor of any Roman Caesar or general to be received was to, to lead one of these parades and to be led as a prisoner in such a triumphal possession signified one's utter and complete defeat. Well, as Paul uses this metaphor here, God is depicted as the sovereign victor, Christ as the general leading the victory possession, and Paul as captured by Christ. Note that Paul is not the one leading the triumphal procession here. No. Oh, no. He's actually being led like a prisoner of war. How? Okay, he's being led like a prisoner of war. How can he thank God for that? It'd be easy to see him thanking God for letting me lead the procession with Christ. Thank you, right? But, but he's being led like a prisoner. How can he thank God for that? Well, the solution to understanding this metaphor isn't to try to soften the image in some way and change the meaning from God leads us in triumphal procession to God causes us to triumph. That's what John Calvin did. He was not at all comfortable with what this metaphor was saying, and so he changed it to God leads us, God causes us to triumph. And years later, that meaning found its way into the King James Version. It is true. It is true that God causes us to triumph in Christ, but that's not what this means. The solution to understanding this metaphor, then, is to recognize what it really means to be led in triumph. And I think we can do that. I think we can understand it through considering the who, the what, and the why of our place in this parade. The who, the what, and the why of our place in this parade. First, the who. We're led as conquered rebels. Paul himself, if you recall, before he was Paul, he was Saul. And what did Saul do? He had an occupation as a murderer. He killed Christians. He sought to destroy the church of Christ. Christ had to conquer him. And he did just that. Radically and decisively conquered on the road to Damascus. Well, before becoming a follower of Christ, we were all enemies of God. You see, Paul wasn't seeking after God, and neither were you. As Romans 3 says, no one does that. No one seeks after God. God sought us. He had to conquer us. And praise God that he did. We're also led as slaves of Christ. The Romans would not only include in their parade their spoils of war, but they would also include the most important leaders and intimidating warriors of the enemy. And they would be presented in the parade as conquered slaves. Any idea what Paul's favorite nickname as an apostle was? His favorite nickname? Slave of Christ. But unlike these Roman slaves, Paul was not led in triumph by a vengeful deity. He had been captured by love. Love which revealed to him that deliverance can only come from the defeat of the old life. In this triumphal procession, we are slaves of Christ. The what? The what of this parade as we 
place ourselves into it, is suffering. Portrayals from the ancient world make it clear that those led in triumphal processions were in fact being led to their death. At the end of the parade, the Romans would publicly slaughter most, if not all, of the prisoners as a sacrifice to their gods. So Paul uses this gruesome metaphor to describe his apostolic life because his suffering was the embodiment of his message of the cross. And it was the very thing that God used to make himself known. The cross determines both Paul's message and his style of ministry. And as Garland said so well, those who preach Christ crucified cannot expect to be crowned with glory by the world which crucified him. Well, in our age of materialism, our age of comfort, many Christians have a really hard time with this. And they find it almost impossible to fathom that God would not only use suffering as the vehicle for manifesting the presence and power of His Spirit, but also use it to actually lead someone to death for the sake of revealing His glory and spreading the gospel. So I strongly encourage you, don't buy the lie of the health and wealth gospel. Don't ever buy into that lie which says true followers of Christ should not have to endure the kind of health problems, financial struggles, and heartache known to the world. We will probably never be called to suffer like Paul. But we too have been conquered by God. We too are slaves of Christ. We as Christians are marching in the same parade And so in the words of Peter, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. According to Jesus, Gaffin said, the church will not have drained the cup, drained the shared cup of his suffering until he returns. The who were conquered rebels, were slaves to Christ, the what? Suffering. Why? What's the purpose of this procession? The why is to glorify our sovereign and powerful God. The purpose of the Roman triumph was to flaunt the power of the victorious general And the role of those being led in triumph was to reveal the glory of the one who had conquered them. Our rescue is not primarily about us. It's about God. We were conquered for His glory. He saved us and He calls us to suffer, to make much of His majesty, power, and grace. So by way of summary... Summarizing this metaphor of the triumphal procession. As enemies of God's people, God had conquered Paul at his conversion call on the road to Damascus, and he was now leading him as a slave of Christ to death in Christ, in order that Paul might display or reveal the majesty, power, and glory of God, his conqueror. So I wonder this morning, 
Have you been conquered by God? God says in His Word that there's no one who's righteous. All have sinned against our holy Creator. The Bible says that we were all natural-born enemies of God. And we're slaves to sin. The brutal master which leads right to death. Do you see your need for rescue? God offers us this rescue through Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life and died on the cross taking the judgment and penalty for sin and three days later was raised from the dead as confirmation that his sacrifice was sufficient and complete. And in Christ, God offers full forgiveness and reconciliation. No longer an enemy, but a son or a daughter, a friend. If you will only repent of your sins and trust in the sacrifice of Christ for your sin, this freedom, forgiveness, and reconciliation can be yours. Are you finding in your rebellion against God emptiness? Do you sense in your heart this is not satisfying? Let God conquer your heart. Jesus is an infinitely better master than sin. And there is no better life than the one that reflects the glory, majesty, and power of a God who rescues rebels. If you are a Christian here this morning, is your identity that of a conquered rebel? Do you see yourself this way? Are, are you living to make much of yourself or much of your master, your king who's conquered your heart? Well, not only does Paul see himself as a conquered rebel, but he also sees himself as a living sacrifice. The second half of verse 14, he says, in this triumphal procession, through us, God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In, in these parades, in these Roman processions, incense would be spread along the streets. But, but, but Paul most likely here is referencing Old Testament sacrifice. The, the phrase, pleasing aroma, it occurs over 40 times in the Old Testament, and every time, it always has to do with sacrifice. Well, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross replaced all sacrifices. As Ephesians 5.2 says, He gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Christ is pictured as the sacrifice, and Paul is the odor that rises from it. Odors and fragrances are intrusive, aren't they? Think with me for a second. Go, go back in your mind and, and think about what was the most intrusive fragrance or odor that came out of your mother's kitchen as you grew up. Do you remember any of those odors? 
I do. And one I don't really care to remember. So, so my father did not like liver. My mother grew up eating it and really, really likes it. So whenever my dad would be out of town, my mom seized the opportunity to cook liver. And I, I distinctly remember the smell that went every single, into every single square inch of that house from liver cooking. And I, I never liked it, and I'm convinced part of the reason I ever liked the taste is I, I couldn't in any way, shape, or form get past the smell. It was awful. Well, well, thankfully, that wasn't the only thing my mom cooked. And I remember some odors and fragrances which were absolutely incredible. My mom would cook banana bread, and she'd usually do a lot of it at once. Oh, the smell of that cooking? Man, it was great. And, and apple pies is another one. She, she'd make these apple pies with the, the crumbly top made of butter and sugar and cinnamon and Oh, the smell of apple pie cooking? Oh, it's wonderful. Uh, well, Christian, you are the aroma of Christ. What do people smell when you enter the room? Do, do they get a pleasant whiff of Christ? Or do they turn up their noses because you smell like bitterness or vanity? They catch a whiff of crankiness or narcissism or sensuality. De Young said so well that everywhere that Paul went, God put a little bit of Jesus under their nose. If we aren't putting off the aroma of Christ, it's most likely because we're having identity amnesia and we've forgotten that we are a living sacrifice. But, but that's what we are. Jesus made it very clear that you cannot follow him without full surrender. He said if you hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. Unless you die to yourself, you're not going to live. So have you surrendered everything to Christ? If so, you are a living sacrifice. So find your identity there. And then smell like it. Release the aroma of Christ as you continue to lay down your life as an offering to God. We see here in this text that God is pleased with the smell of the aroma of Christ wafting from the living sacrifices of his people. It's pleasing to God. But Paul goes on to say that not everyone in this world finds it so pleasant. Verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Just as there are ultimately only two kinds of soil, in Jesus' parable that the seed lands on, there are two kinds of noses that the scent of Christ enters. 
Those who are being saved catch the aroma of Christ and find it pleasant, and it leads to life. To those who are perishing, the smell of Christ stinks, and it leads to death. Clements said this so well. To the one, Paul's message is an alluring perfume, a spiritual oxygen that breathes life into their souls. To the other, a stench in their nostrils, a spiritual cyanide that suffocates and poisons them to death. The character of a person's moral disposition determines the nature of his response. And what we see here, and what Paul's saying is, that he's merely an instrument. Like a litmus paper test that reveals the true nature of a person's heart. There's a really helpful parallel to this in, in 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18. I, I invite you to turn there. I encourage you to look at these two verses. 1 Corinthians 1. First Corinthians 1, verses 17 and 18. Paul writes to the same people, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Haifman in his commentary had a really helpful chart that kind of captures these parallels. Paul's ministry and his message were one. So what he could say about the cross of Christ in these verses, 1 Corinthians, he could reaffirm about his own life as an apostle in our text, 2 Corinthians. So therefore, as the aroma of Christ, Paul's life brings about the same twofold effect caused by his proclamation of the gospel. So as we compare these two, for... The word of the cross, we're the Rome of Christ, is foolishness to those who are perishing. Among those who are perishing, a fragrance from death to death. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Among those who are being saved, a fragrance from life to life. So to reject Paul and his message as foolishness confirmed that one was already perishing. To accept Paul and his message demonstrated that the power of God was already at work to save. Realizing the significance of his ministry, Paul asked at the end of verse 16, back in 2 Corinthians 2. He asks, who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Peddlers, 
were merchants who would regularly cheat their customers by misrepresenting a product in order to increase their profit. It never happens to us today, does it? Misrepresenting a product for the sake of profit? Well, it was all over the place in Corinth. And many of the super apostles who opposed Paul approached the gospel ministry as a business for profit. They saw it as an opportunity to become rich and famous. These guys were really good orders. And in this day, orders were kind of like our movie stars, our rock stars. I mean, they were the celebrities of Corinth. And, and, and these guys, really good orders, would pay, people would pay then to hear these guys talk. They'd talk about all kinds of things, but they would pay to listen. And being driven by, driven by profit, these men were quite willing to tamper with the message, if necessary. So, if tampering the message would mean more people, more money, oh yeah, totally do it. Whatever it takes to draw a crowd and to make the most money. But Paul's ministry is not driven by an eye for the bottom line. In fact, one of the reasons Paul refused payment for his ministry in Corinth was because he was deeply concerned it be clear that he was not in it for the money. And he doesn't alter the message in hopes that more people would like it. Rather, his speaking is marked by four qualities. They're there in verse 17. Sincerity. He, he spoke with pure motives. As one commissioned by God, in God's presence, under His omniscient and ever-watchful eye, mindful that every word He spoke was known by God and that He would give a full account to God for what He spoke in God's name. He spoke in Christ from the spiritual context of his vital living union with Christ, Paul spoke, and I skipped one. He was commissioned by God. What he says originates with God, not himself. Paul did not make up the gospel. So if anybody's trying to con the Corinthians, it can't be Paul. His manner of life including his suffering for the sake of the Corinthians, is evidence of sincere motives, which are manifestations of the grace of God in his life. Paul was an apostle. Apostles were given really unique ministries, right? There aren't any apostles today. Pastors are probably the closest thing that we have to them in function. So there is a lot of really clear and direct application here for men who preach. It's really direct, and there's a lot there. But I think there's something here for all of us. For just like Paul, every Christian has been conquered by Christ Every Christian is being led in triumphal procession, and every Christian is the aroma of Christ to God. So then consider three points of personal application. First, speak the gospel. Speak the gospel. The aroma of Christ is spread primarily by speaking. 
in, in, in this kind of bookends the verses we're looking at this morning. Verse 12, he goes to Troas to preach the gospel. Verse 17, we speak in Christ. Perhaps you've heard the saying, preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Well, a couple things on that saying. First, it probably did not originate with Francis of Assisi. That's who gets credit for that saying. Likely not the case. But more significantly, it's really bad advice. It's really bad advice because it is directly opposed to Scripture. It is true that our actions need to adorn the gospel. It does matter how you live. If you live in a way that doesn't line up with the message you speak, that's a huge problem. But evangelism requires that we speak the good news. That is the aroma. The world gets a whiff of Christ by hearing us give verbal witness to the cross of Christ. So, a better saying Preach the gospel, and since it is necessary, use words. Are you giving people the chance to smell Jesus? Or are you keeping it to yourself? We need to speak. Speak the gospel. Second, find your sufficiency in God. Find your sufficiency in God. The responsibility of sharing this message comes with a great burden. Who is worthy to speak a message, the response of which will lead you to heaven or lead you to hell? Paul felt the weight of this, which is why he asks, who is sufficient for these things? Well, in and of himself, Paul certainly wasn't. But having been conquered by God as the aroma of Christ, Paul is confident that God is making himself known through him. And so he can say, as as he continues down in 3.5, he can say, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. So yes, what your gut probably is telling you is true. You are nobody. You are nobody, and you're utterly incapable of this. But you know somebody. You know the God of the universe, and in Him, in Him, we are sufficient for this high privilege and responsibility of spreading the aroma of Christ through speaking the gospel. Speak the gospel. Find your sufficiency in God. And then third, leave the response to God. Leave the response to God. As you speak the gospel, it wafts up to God and people smell it. For some, it is a whiff of salvation. For others, it's a whiff of death. And we ultimately have nothing to do with which one it is. We can't get anyone saved. The results of our evangelism are not our responsibility. 
Our responsibility is to faithfully speak as Paul did. To speak with sincerity, grace, to speak with love, and to speak in a way that's as pleasant and winsome as we possibly can. We must loose the aroma and then trust God. We must trust God with how it hits people's nostrils. God is totally sovereign over their response. So where do you find your identity this morning? As Christians, we must not find our identity in difficult life circumstances, achievement, acceptance, performance, or physical things. Rather, we must find our identity in who we are in Christ. We're a conquered rebel, carried around as God's display of Christ to the world. One who's now a slave to Christ and called to follow the path of suffering, all for the glory of God, who has decisively, powerfully, and graciously conquered our rebellious hearts. And we must see ourselves as a living sacrifice that carries around the aroma of Christ, which is pleasing to God. Father, thank you for conquering our hearts, for turning us on our path of rebellion back to you and drawing us to yourself through Christ. Thank you for that. And thank you for the freedom from sin and the bondage to Christ that we now have. There's no better master and we find in him our life. And thank you, Father, for causing us to lay down our lives through faith, through repentance, and thank you for the privilege, the high privilege of being the aroma of Christ to others. Father, may we be faithful in this. Help us to speak in a way that rightly reflects the beauty and truth of Christ. Father, may we live a life of surrender. May we live in such a way that lines up, that harmonizes with this message that we speak. This is beyond us, Father. This calling, this responsibility, we cannot do. We're not sufficient. But thank you for giving us all that we need in Christ and for providing us with your sufficiency that we might be faithful for your glory. It's in Christ we ask these things. Amen.